I'm Abby Hornacek. I'm Ben Dominich. I'm Dana Perino, and this is the Fox News Rundown. Monday, September 18th, 2023. I'm Eben Brown. Americans held captive in Iran are coming home. It's costing billions in formerly frozen funds. But what does a deal with a despotic regime say about the U.S.? Iranian officials routinely talk about knowing they are outgunned. The difference is they're more willing to use their guns earlier. This is the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition. Five U.S. citizens are freed from Iranian captors as part of a deal between the Islamic Republic of Iran and the U.S., a deal which included the release of Iranian prisoners held by the U.S., and $6 billion in formerly frozen funds. There is no doubt that the return of these Americans to their families, to their homes, is a good thing. But this comes at a cost, and that cost isn't just simply $6 billion. Unfortunately, the Islamic Republic's entire timeline, the past four-ish decades it's been around, has been entirely consistent with its timeline of hostage-taking. Benham Ben Talablu is a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Perhaps the Islamic Republic of Iran's most infamous taking of hostages was during its storming of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in November of 1979, where U.S. diplomats were held for 444 days. And ever since that experience, it actually realized that there is an asymmetry in hostage taking. It's able to accomplish something. It's able to spite an adversary. It's able to use human beings quite literally as pawns in their larger game of strategic competition against usually larger, usually Western adversaries, as well as free up assets, free up money that is blocked. And uh, you've seen Iran's proxies pick up this habit over the past few decades. Uh, You've seen the Islamic Republic intensify its hostage-taking apparatus, uh, quite literally uh, engaging in hostage diplomacy, ransoming at various different levels, trying to get pallets of cash that, you know, that was talked about before. Leading all the way up to uh, this current case, there were some prisoners, um, uh, some hostages in, in, in this current round that were in Iran, held against their will as hostage for eight years. That is obviously eight years too long. But the fear is, and again, this is, uh, no one can, can doubt that this is a happy day for the families who have waited so long. Some, as I mentioned, eight years and eight years too many. Um, to be reunited with their loved ones. But the fear is that more loved ones will become disunited with this deal. More loved ones will be subject to this larger game of hostage taking uh, by the Islamic Republic. There is still a supply side problem about Americans who still visit that country, dual nationals who visit that country. But even look, European diplomats are being held hostage. Now, there was a story a few days ago about a Swedish diplomat who was held for 500 plus days and only the media broke the news. The Swedish government was entirely silent on this issue. The Islamic Republic is now grabbing who it can, whenever it can, because most unfortunately it learned over these past four decades. Hostage taking is asymmetric and hostage taking quite literally pays dividends. Iran is not a very big country. It is not one that, even though it has a formidable military, it's not one that is a, it's not a superpower. Why does it seem to wield this kind of uh, hypnosis over Western powers? There seems to be a lot of kid gloves being worn when dealt with Iran. And uh, we are talking, of course, about Iran's regime, which is a different 
entity than Iran's population. We know what they have been suffering through, and, and they have made their voices heard over the past year plus at this point, and and uh, and well known at this point uh, through the advent of social media and whatnot. But why why do the governments of the world still play nice with the government of Iran? Or, or am I asking the unanswerable question? I don't necessarily think it's unanswerable. Uh, it, in recent years, it may have more to do with the Islamic Republic, meaning we've really seen a revolution in the asymmetric and hybrid military capabilities. There is the mastery of the entire spectrum of the unmanned aerial threats that I like to call. You know, on the lower tier, you got mortars and rockets. Then in the mid tier, you got drones, then cruise missiles, then in the highest tier, ballistic missiles. Uh, it is becoming a more lethal, more potent asymmetric military challenge. And the power it presents in, in a place like the Middle East is the power of destruction. It's the power of disruption. It is the capability with money and the will to enter a conflict zone earlier to create or co-opt terror and proxy groups and ultimately control a series of hot spots and local battlefields and crises that basically redound to our political disadvantage to say, ah, it's too costly to contest them here. Ah, it's too costly to respond with force here. Ah, it's too costly to actually impose costs on the Islamic Republic and its partners and proxies. And successfully, they are trying to push us out of the region. Uh, again, I say successfully because there are some own goals there. There's been talk on both sides of the aisle about basically leaving the Middle East for quite some time now. And once that happens, uh, you see the Islamic Republic trying to do uh, you know, a reverse of NATO. Remember the, the statement by the first secretary general uh, of NATO uh, was that he wanted that uh, NATO was designed uh, to keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. The Islamic Republic kind of has a similar strategy for the region. It's for it's to, to keep itself and its proxies in. It's to keep America out and the Arabs down. Uh, and ultimately, if it accomplishes all those three things, it opens the gateway to be able to do the final thing, which is something the regime has thought about for quite some time, which is this, this genocidal campaign against um, the only Jewish democratic state in the world, the state of Israel. Um, so this is this is the, the one thing, this kind of revolution in military capabilities and a very consistent regional security strategy has done. But to a much more recent development, um, even the Biden administration, uh, which is doing a lot in Ukraine and being able to push past Putin's nuclear sable rattling, still seems to be afraid by the Ayatollah's conventional and terrorism's uh, sable rattling. You know, Iran is certainly not a superpower, you're right. The Islamic Republic certainly doesn't even have the military capabilities of the Russian Federation. Um, and yet a state with the GDP of Iran, the military capabilities of Iran, continues to be treated this way. And it tells you more about us, about our psychological and mental blocks and policy blocks and political blocks uh, than the reality of the capabilities on the ground. Iranian officials routinely talk about knowing they are outgunned. The difference is they're more willing to use their guns earlier. Uh, the general who gave the order to fire the 16 ballistic missiles at the two bases in Iraq in January 2020 after the U.S. killed Iran's chief terrorist, Qasem Soleimani, he said in an Iranian documentary that was on Iranian TV, that he knows America has the balance of capability. I'm doing a paraphrase. But he is talking about the balance of resolve. And that resolve certainly seems to have spooked us. That resolve is, I, I think, what I there are, I would say, half of Americans are worried about, that we don't have the guts. And and it's it's been something that has been highlighted, I think, not just by Iran, but by its terror proxies and, and by even Iran's own enemies in the region who aren't necessarily our friends, say Americans don't have the stomach 
to go to that kind of, of a conflict. Um, this, of course, comes after 20 years of, of sitting in Afghanistan and apparently uh, with questionable accomplishments. So uh, how, how does this how does what happened today either finish our position or how does that cement our position as a as a world power if we are at least in some ways capitulating? Well, then again, uh, it's worth noting that this waters down our position. Again, no one has qualms with American families coming home. No one has qualms with the reuniting of loved ones. What people who have qualms with are giving money to the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism. What people have qualms with are own goals to the U.S. position, not realizing that the day the waiver for the $6 billion to go to Iran, however indirectly, with the humanitarian accounts in Qatar, are... To have that waiver be signed and issued on 9-11, the tone deafness of that, the lack of strategic vision of that, the own goal that that actually sets. Again, this is about first doing no harm to the American position and the way we handle an issue. It's not necessarily our policies and our politics anymore. It's structurally how we manage these problems uh, that is yielding more advantage for our adversaries. And that's really what I mean here by no more own goals. It's great to have American families coming home. As you know, I disagree with giving the world's foremost state sponsor of terrorism money. But in the case where you are unfortunately doing that, you should get all Americans out. There remain three American nationals in Iran, as defined by the Levinson Act. There are countless other Western and European hostages there. Why couldn't we get those guys out? Why couldn't we stop the flow of people going to this place so long as it remains this number one hostage-taking jurisdiction? We are speaking with Benham Ben Talablu. He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. On the return of five Americans freed by Iran in exchange for $6 billion freed of Iranian money. On the Fox News Rundown Evening Edition, we'll have more straight ahead. And I would think, uh, at the risk of, of sounding like I'm uh, making a joke here, the, the, the best way to not get taken hostage by Iran is to not go there. The more Americans that are there that are, are risking and, and, and risking themselves and, and perhaps being taken hostage, the more this goes on. Mostly, but not exclusively. I'll tell you why. Let me work backwards. Uh, one of those three U.S. nationals, uh, Jamshid Shahmad, was actually kidnapped abroad. His case is actually the most harrowing. He was kidnapped abroad while transiting back to the West during, uh, you know, early to mid-COVID when there were these travel restrictions around the world. He was kidnapped by the regime's agents in Dubai, smuggled to Oman, then brought to Iran, tried, quote unquote, tried in sham trials and given a, a death sentence in Iran's highest courts. So now there's an American who is subject to the death sentence there. And he didn't even visit the country. The regime feels so empowered to do this. It went abroad to take these foreign citizens. And he's not even an Iranian citizen, actually. Yes, he has Iranian ancestry, but he has not. He did not have an active Iranian passport at the time. So there's this larger problem of, well, the regime may actually become more and more emboldened and go abroad. And in fact, uh, in mid to late 2020, an Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, media outlet talked about me, an Iranian-American, and my Iranian-American colleagues, past and present at FED, talking about the need to kidnap us from abroad and engage in the same kind of punishment with veiled reference to that death sentence and bring us back to uh, Iran. I'm a proud American born and raised here, proud of my Iranian ancestry as well. But this is something that the regime is going to be looking to extend the more it sees that there are wins in its column on this side. So that's point number one. The supply side problem you mentioned, point number two, is 
tough, a tough pill to have the community swallow, but I think it takes mature, responsible adults to have to sit down and indeed swallow this pill. Look at North Korea. I believe in terms of U.S. law, the American passport is not valid for travel there because of the problems there with that country. We need to consider some kind of mechanism, uh, either private sector or, or public, to restrict American travel to Iran, save potentially for some of the most uh, uh, acute humanitarian you know, family visits. But even then, uh, you do get uh, taken hostage uh, or indeed kidnapped. So this is this is a problem. There's also the logistical problem of the Iranian-American or Iranian-Western dual nationals who go often only travel on their Iranian, not their Western passport, which creates a logistical tracing problem. So you need the community to understand the risks to not go. Uh, and also you need to be able to transfer some of this cost onto the private sector. Uh, the plane should perhaps not honor tickets uh, of dual nationals, sort of like under COVID. You know, many had talked about this before. I'm certainly not the first one. Uh, you couldn't board a plane without a valid PCR test, even if you had bought a ticket. Perhaps if you are dual national and it's discovered, uh, uh, you you know, and you bought a ticket, the ticket should not be honored at the counter uh, because your return ticket probably may not be honored on your way out of Tehran or Isfahan or Shiraz or Mashhad or wherever else you're flying out of. You mentioned that there was a threat against your own life or safety. Do you look over your shoulder a lot more now? I mean, that that's a pretty harrowing thing to be told. It's, it's a harrowing thing to read in print, but essentially I, I am not even an activist. I am an American think tanker born and raised with Iranian ancestry who has the luxury and the privilege of thinking the strategic thing and doing and saying the right thing, being able to be in the same zone. I'm an analyst not an activist, and this is what they've said against me. Um, the two other colleagues that I, that I mentioned, uh, one of them uh, was actually in Iran as, as, as a young student. He grew up there. He came to the States. Um, uh, his name is Dr. Saeed Ghassaminijad. Uh, you know, he was actually in prison in Iran before he came to the States. Uh, he, he does macroeconomic work. He's a you know, brilliant uh, econometric scholar, uh, financial sanctions scholar at, at our office. They've threatened him online multiple times. I am essentially a nobody, and yet they feel the need to make these threats. Just last week, I had the privilege of testifying before the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Middle East Subcommittee. Literally to my left, I was seated next to Masi Alinejad, where you've seen and heard the things the regime has tried to do to her. They've tried to which, kidnap yes, she's her. an yeah. activist, yeah, <laughs> but she's an American citizen, and she's yeah. an American journalist, and they are trying to kidnap and extradite and punish her. I am a nobody, but they are going up and down these chains, leveling threats in all of their own ways here. Uh, so this is this just tells you the nature of this problem. And if anyone is is wondering uh, who Masi Alinejad is, uh, she is, I believe, New York based, and she is a, a rather vocal critic of of the of the Iranian regime. She is Iranian uh, of Iranian descent herself, uh, and uh, she had someone show up at her residence who tried to take her physically, and it turned out to have been a a plot to uh, to uh, abduct her. Very. Uh, very frightening. Then it happened here on the U.S. soil. So, Benham Ben Talablu, you are a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Thank you for once again being with us on the Fox News Rundown the Evening Edition. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.